Hola, hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. Republicans, you have a question to answer. Do you believe in America's electoral system or not? We know Donald Trump does not, which is why he has been impeached for creating a phony story about election fraud and using it to incite his followers to overturn Joe Biden's victory. Not just incite them through the victory, but incite a mob to literally lynch the vice president. But how about Kevin McCarthy, Republican leader in the House? I note leader in the House. What? Look at this picture. What the hell was Kevin McCarthy doing with Trump yesterday? Traveling all the way to Florida to see him. The House of Representatives has just impeached Donald Trump. Ten of McCarthy's Republican colleagues in the House voted for impeachment. Yet here is McCarthy in that palace of poor taste, Trump's Mar-a-Lago. Some political writers describe the Republican Party as split over Trump and his fascist behaviors. But it isn't true. A small faction is appalled by Trump and would like to evict him from the party. A small faction. Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, maybe even Mitch McConnell, who admitted that Donald Trump incited the insurrection. They are the remnants of an effort the party made to civilize itself and strip itself of the most racist elements, or at least those who are visibly racist. But they lost control of the presidential nomination in 2016. And frankly, it looks like they've already lost this effort to banish Trump. A vote in the Senate this week suggests that there are not 17 Republicans ready to convict Trump. And after that, that vote, Kevin McCarthy rushed down to Florida, begging to rush down to Florida, might I add, to push Trump himself that seals the deal. And it explains it too. Trump announced to McCarthy that he is ready to raise money and campaign for candidates to help win the House in 2022. Because let's just remember, historically, the other party wins in the midterm election. And clearly McCarthy has decided that this is where the future is in the Republican Party with the radical right racists who love Trump, the seditionists. I can't tell you how sad and scary this is. We have to be very clear. The Republican Party is not divided. They're actually growing. The GOP is the party of Trump and will be unless somebody suddenly awakens and and, and some awakening prompts Senate Republicans to convict Trump and block him from office ever again. But we can't hold our breath, which is why we need to draw this line very clearly everywhere we can. This is why AOC was correct in calling out Ted Cruz. Let's show that tweet real quick. We know He didn't personally try to kill her, but he was a key leader of Trump's phony campaign to discredit the election and cheer on his mob. What the hell was all that Ivy League education worth, Senator Cruz, if you learned, if if what you learned is that it's okay to lie to undermine the American Constitution? Do they not teach actions have consequences at Harvard Law School? This supposed institutionalist who tried cases before the Supreme Court flipped real fast. What's more unpatriotic, what is more unpatriotic than disrespecting the Constitution, Ted Cruz? Ted Cruz was not just complicit, he was an accomplice in this Trump conspiracy to block a legitimate election. For a brief moment after the Capitol was ransacked, it looked like maybe the Republican Party may have had enough. It was too embarrassing for them. 
But those 10 Republican House members voted for impeachment and McConnell left the door ajar for Republican senators to convict Trump as well. But it looks like that that moment has passed. McCarthy's visit to Mar-a-Lago says the institution of the Republican Party has embraced former President Trump and wants everything that he can do for them because they're dependent on that mob to get reelected in two years. The chair of the Republican Party said the same thing this week. Oh, and by the way, they even allowed that Trump was not automatically, he literally said this, the 2024 presidential nominee. So a man who embraced the Proud Boys, caged humans at the border, forced sterilizations, separated babies from parents who lied his way into power and then tried to keep that power through lying, a man who trampled his own oath to uphold the Constitution, who might be compromised based on recent reports. So he is now the unquestioned leader of the Republican Party that used to be full of patriots and institutionalists and statists. Because Republicans are too afraid or too ambitious to call him out. Where is your line? I don't like to make this comparison. It can sound paranoid and hyperbolic. But this is exactly how the Nazis came to power. Germans were angry and aggrieved. They even had a right to be because of the economy. But being angry never justified the phony stories the Germans were told about how their livelihoods and their country had been stolen from them by communists and Jews. They wanted to stop that steal. The result was 75 million dead. And those dead have lessons for us. Respect the truth. Don't look the other way at demagogues and deceit. And never leave the job of defending democratic values to someone else. There is no one else. There certainly isn't the Republican Party to defend the system anymore. The party of Reagan, racist as they were, there are at least lines drawn. So good for AOC for calling out Ted Cruz. And good for Nancy Pelosi for calling out McCarthy and his Republican cohorts for not doing something about Marjorie Taylor Greene. But she is low-hanging fruit. Let's make that very clear. They can let her go. How about calling out McCarthy for embracing embracing Trump? You know, this new representative from Georgia who wants to pack her, her gun on the House floor, who takes QAnon madness as truth and supported the execution of Democrats. That's who they are willing to call out, this freshman Republican. But if that's not over the line, then what is? The Republican leadership gave Marjorie Taylor Greene her committee assignment this woman who accused a teenage survivor of, par- of the Parkland High School shooting massacre of conspiring with George Soros, you know what that means, to take away her gun. She was placed on the education committee. Someone who went after students for fighting back against a mass shooting, who put in uh, horrifying tropes, anti-Semitic tropes, She was put on the education committee. I am serious. Complicity, it comes in many colors. Colluding with those who undermine our electoral system fuels them. That's why, that is why Jimmy Dore and Joe Rogan are so dangerous. Having Alex Jones on isn't being open-minded. Having the Bugaloo boys on and saying, oh, you agree with a couple of things is not open-minded. It is enabling the enemies of truth, actual truth, and the opponents of democratic freedoms. And Spotify handing over hundreds of millions of dollars to someone who is complicit deserves calling out. Those are accomplices 
and they need to be held to account. And institutions, whether it's Spotify or the GOP, who are complicit, they need to be stopped and called out as well. This is not a fight within the Republican Party. They're not divided. The Republican Party is growing. These young, young patriots who are getting elected, literally elected, were radicalized online. This is the danger. The Republican Party appears to have decided that deception, racism, and complicity with sedition are all okay. And the rest of us are left with only option. No, it is not okay. It is not okay. And if the Democrats don't do anything other than go for the low-hanging fruit like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and they don't call out the Republican leadership for enabling this and being complicit because they're more concerned with growing the Republican Party that they thought was dead, they're not divided. They are on a roll right now. And if they don't have a line, then we have to draw ours. And that is why we have to keep holding our lawmakers accountable and calling them out the way AOC did, but also calling out the Democrats who are literally doing nothing but the low-hanging fruit right now. All right, we have a great show today. It is Femme Friday. Esperanza Fonseca and our very own Piper Winkler are here to cast their uh, female gaze on this week's events. And coming up right after the break, there's a new election in town. I don't know if you guys know about this, but we have a state senator from New Mexico. She's a law professor. She is on to talk about her campaign to fill the seat of Congresswoman Deb Holland. That is right after this break. to the Nomi Key Show. I am thrilled to have a candidate. Oh, it's candidate season already. No, we don't, we don't take breaks here in American politics. We do not. Uh, there are, are a few seats that have opened up due to appointments to the cabinet um, by President Joe Biden. One seat is out of New Mexico. Uh, Congresswoman, former Congresswoman, I should say, Deb Holland has been appointed to be uh, Secretary of the Interior, an historic move. And that opens up her congressional district. And there's going to be a special election, a very, a very special election, which we'll get to. Uh, but we're thrilled to have Antoinette Cedilla Lopez, who is a state senator in New Mexico right now. Her district is the 16th district, and she is running to replace, to fill uh, that seat. It's the first congressional district in New Mexico. Uh, very, very honored to have you, Senator. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, and I... I'm thrilled to be running for this seat. Um, as you know, I, I, or you may know, I ran two years ago against Deb. And I felt very proud because I moved the whole field to the left, including Deb. And I'm very proud because she stayed there. Um, you know, she was talking about affordable access at first, and then she went to Medicare for All, and then she signed on to the Medicare for All bill. So I just felt really good about that. And my joke Almost with her like is- Almost like primaries I'm, matter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, crazy. Sorry, go ahead. They do. They do matter. And you have a, a pretty good relationship with her, which is also incredible because, you know, sometimes, most of the time, I'd say it doesn't really work out that way. But um, it's a great model for how primaries probably should run. Well, you know, what was great is I, um, we were both, well, we were friends before, but we're better friends now. But at one point, we were both attacked by this dark money pack that was out of Minnesota, I, we couldn't even figure out who this pack was, but it seemed tied to some 
uh, billionaire oil people, I don't know. Um, and they attacked both of us. And so we talked and we coordinated and we kept the lines of communication. I did op-ed pieces and different kinds of strategies. She did other kinds of strategies. And we always talked about why are they attacking the two women of color in the race? You know, and we always mentioned each other. And, and I wanted it to be her if it wasn't me. And, and to be honest, I was so focused on policies. I didn't recognize the historic implications of having her be the first um, you know, the first Native American woman in Congress. And, and, and when she took her oath in her Native dress, I just, I was so proud that we did that. So it was, it was interesting to go through that race, but I'm, I never dreamed I'd be able to do it again, especially so soon. It's, it's a really, and now she's, she's uh, made history by being uh, the, the Secretary of the Interior, which uh, is historic in the sense of how, um, oppressive the, the Interior Department has been on Indigenous people throughout our history, uh, through our, our country's official history, I should say, not through uh, the history of these lands, but it's, uh, it's pretty powerful. It's going to be a game changer because Native peoples have never trusted the Department of Interior. <laughs> Rightfully so. Yeah. It's going to be huge. Yeah, for good reason. Yeah, for absolutely good reason. So, Senator, I am fascinated by your race because it is not a conditional, uh, you know, traditional, excuse me, not conditional, uh, it's not a traditional primary. Um, it's, it's the only way that I could, for our audience in particular, who's been following these types of races um, in different parts of the country, the only way I could sort of compare it is uh, in New York State, New York City in particular, when a position opens up, uh, it's a it's a one party city for the most part, and when a position opens up, the Democratic County Committee is very involved, and so whoever they decide, this committee decides, will be the nominee. Is basically who wins. Um, you have a committee that that's how this decision part of this decision is made, right? Could you could you kind of break down the process for folks? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, um, she has to resign. You know, and so I'm. In I intend to run. So once she resigns, then each of the each of the parties have to uh, nominate their candidate. And in the Democratic Party, that's through a state central committee process. And so there are about 174 state central committee members, and they vote on which person they want to be the be the nominee. The complication with this process is we have an election scheduled of state central committee members in March. <laughs> and so if she resigns, if, if Deb Holland, uh, Congresswoman Holland resigns before February 22nd, it'll be the existing state central committee. And I love them. I know them. I've worked with them. We've been putting a lot of effort over the years to make the group more, um, more progressive and just more, more engaged. And I would love it to be them. But now we're going to have a new election. So what we're doing is trying to do the same thing. We're trying to use my candidacy to get more and more progressive people involved in the party and, and through this vehicle. So I'm, I'm excited about it. This is OK. So let me just get this timeline right, because uh, this is the political nerd in me, like you know, yes. freaking out. OK, so first, she has not been um, she, she has not been sworn in yet. For it. She has not been sworn in. She has not resigned. And she told me that she's not going to resign until she's actually sworn in. 
That makes sense. I mean, in the in the climate that we're in right now, that makes a lot of sense. So she hasn't been sworn in yet. Um, as soon as she's sworn in uh, as the as the 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 Secretary of the Interior, uh, Interior she then will uh, step down from her position. And then, who calls the election date? Is it the governor? The Secretary of State. Secretary the Secretary of State, State, right. State will call the election for within night or ninety ninety days after within, she steps down. Okay, so it, the election has days? to be within 90 days of the day that they call. Okay. And then, but uh, 55, at least 55 days before that, the parties have to have to submit the name of their nominee to the Secretary of State. And the Secretary of State will prepare the special election ballot with the names of the nominees that have been selected by each of the parties. Okay, and so, so, so that's then the 55 days before the election is called, Yes, this is the party, but the party also has its own election. So is there a possibility that uh, Congresswoman Holland will not step down so that there's enough time for the election of the party? So it's not chaotic, right? So that there's enough yes. time for the new party members to be um, put in place and then then they choose versus Prior to that, I mean, they're, 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 I mean, they could, if she could step down tomorrow well, and they could call it and, and they would have a possibility. And, and, and this, and the party that exists now, the state central committee that exists now would choose if she steps down before February 22nd. If it's after, then it's whoever's going to get elected to be on the state central committee. So it's election after election after election. <laughs> sort of like dominoes. Well, I mean, it's, it's, but. To make it even simpler for folks to understand, you're not going to be campaigning for traditional votes. This is a total insider game here with extreme consequences, let's just say. So your, your job well, is to oh, lobby them, right? And, and help, obviously, get more progressives into the, the, the Central Committee. So last time, when I ran against Deb, um, we both made it on the ballot through this process. Um, she got more votes than I did, but I've been able to retain everybody who supported me is still with me. And a lot of people who supported her said, hey, you were my second choice, so I'm with you. And oh, so great. I'm really good. Yeah, I, I would feel great if it was this committee. <laughs> um, but we'll see, we'll see what happens. We're also, as I said, we're really recruiting a lot of progressives to run so that we can, uh, you know, so that we'll infiltrate the party and also so that I can, uh, I can win. So when do progressives need to step up to run for this, this central committee? They, they need to go to their ward meetings, which are called by the ward chair, so they're various times. Mm -hmm. uh, but people could go to my website, cedillolopez.com, and they can get all this information about their ward meetings, their precincts. Uh, they can sign up to do a training with, with our organizers. So I have a team of fabulous, a six-person team of fabulous organizers that are working on this. All right, now let's talk about who you are. Uh, now that we've got the process out of the way, because we had to make that very clear from the top so folks understand this, this it's a very complicated election. Um, you have been a longtime activist. You're, you're a professor. Uh, you, 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 like you said, you're for Medicare for all. So that's a great litmus test for progressives. But um, you know, what's your background prior to being a, a senator? Well, I, well, so I was raised here in, in New Mexico in a small farming community and um, pretty humble background. And then I, um, in my, one of my stories that I always tell is 
um, when I wanted to go to, when I expressed an interest in law, my high school counselor said, that's great, Antoinette, because you're so smart. You'll make a great legal secretary. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing wrong with being a legal secretary. It's just not what I wanted. Right. And it was just channeling in a certain way. And so um, that's, that is, but I ex way exceeded expectations. I went to UNM undergraduate, University of New Mexico. Then I got admitted to UCLA Law School which is really great. I clerked at the DC circuit back when, um, uh, you know, back at the time that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on the court as a circuit court judge. So before she was on the court, on the Supreme Court. And then I came home to New Mexico. I became a law professor and I practiced for 27 years, but I really had a pull to work for community. So I became the executive director of Enlace Comunitario which is a domestic violence agency that serves all, of course, but our target outreach was Latino immigrants. So I was very active, had I, as I had been before, but I got very, very uh, intensely active with immigrant communities here in, in, uh, in central New Mexico. And um, what happened is after this, our last president, our former president was selected by the electoral college. And that's accurate, that's how I like to put it. Um, when I started showing up in the courthouses here and I, um, our, our clients were upset. They didn't want to go get the restraining orders. They didn't want to cooperate with police. They were just scared of ICE detaining them. So I uh, filed a petition with the Supreme Court and that got a lot of attention. I ended up getting on television and, and the newspaper on radio and people started saying to me, you should run for Congress because Michelle Lujan Grisham's running for governor. The seat's gonna be open. And about the 11th person who told me that, you know, made me think, you know what? Yes, I should. And I did. And you know, that's it's how funny. <laughs> it's yeah. funny you say the 11th person because there is a, uh, I don't know how they, they, they analyze this, but there's a stat uh, that says that the average woman who runs for office has to be asked, you know, seven or eight times uh, to run. So I'm not surprised that it took 11 people. Yeah. Well, I just felt like, you know, I had work to do, but then I started realizing and really looking into it. And I thought, you know, they need a powerful voice in Congress that really understands immigrant issues, a powerful voice in Congress that really knows how much we need Medicare for all, universal single payer, how much we need a Green New Deal. So when I got to the, so all that happened, I was not successful, Deb Holland won. And I, it was a great thing that she won. Um, but I, you know how sometimes when you put yourself out there, other people notice you? Well, I was appointed to be a state senator, and I know it's because of the run. Uh, the county commission appointed me to become a state senator, and so now I have two years as a senator under my belt. And I learned a lot about politics, but I also learned about myself. One of the, I pursued the same agenda, and so one of the first things I did was um, try to put a pause on fracking here in New Mexico. And the oil company, you would have thought they, I don't know, that I could just single-handedly snap by fingers or something and, and they would close down. They just went crazy. And what I learned about myself is I can stand up to them. And I was strong. Um, and it was great. Like they started attacking me on Twitter. And so I just, I just uh, responded saying, uh, because a lot of people started defending me because people care about fracking and what it's doing to our air and our land and our water. And so they were defending me. And so I got on and I said, thank you so much. I couldn't buy this kind of exposure. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do. I mean, it's, it's, they it's took it down. They took it oh, down. Wow. 
<laughs> so it was official. It's from an official account. It wasn't like they. Oh yeah, they hired no, it was the Oil and Gas Association. Yeah, it was the it was the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association was attacking me. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, I've heard stories from friends of I, I was involved in the anti-fracking uh, fight in New York, and and stories I've heard from people who've been in this fight for a long time. Uh, people like Bill McKibben and and Josh Fox. Uh, they are relentless and clever. So, I mean, it does. It takes a lot to to fight the oil and gas industry. Well, um, I, I'm very proud because what I realized is nobody's going to push me around. And that's what we like. <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about just New Mexico. You, you mentioned oil and gas, but I, I recently drove through New Mexico and I, I was in Santa, I stayed in different parts of New Mexico. Um, and I just, I, it, it really is an enchanting state. I, <laughs> you guys don't lie about that. But what was really uh, amazing to see is I was taking a cross country trip going through all these states that were red states and uh, seeing how folks reacted to COVID, COVID denial, you know, you have to eat at places along the way and we would take food to go and we'd sit outside and you'd go inside and you'd see how people process COVID, right? Um, and I had been in, in Texas just a few hours before coming into New Mexico and I stopped in this little town and, uh, you know, drove in and it was a Mexican restaurant, wanted to get the food to go. It was packed, packed jam-packed, this is over the summer, and no one was wearing a mask. And I oh, yeah. I was afraid, you know, I, I actually had like a physical um, yeah. reaction to lunchtime crowd, right? So we got in the car, we ended up in New Mexico, and it was so refreshing after nine, 10 states, is, you know, before the election, some of these states are purple states, it was so refreshing going into New Mexico and seeing mask ordinances in place over the summer, like I said, uh, yeah. folks who were just more respectful and conscious of, of, of this pandemic. And I know that that sounds basic because it should be basic, but, but know, it was eye-opening <laughs> to see how progressive the state had become. We are very lucky because we have a governor who was a former secretary of health in our state. So she has been relentless. She has done a great job and people take it seriously. I mean, there are pockets um, of places in New Mexico that don't. Little Texas is one of them. And I worry about them. We just found out that a, a legislature, Republican legislature, um, legislator has COVID. And apparently he was at a luncheon with other Republicans without, a ma without wearing masks. And- he Probably drove over the border to yeah, that one restaurant. Yeah. It's just really disappointing. Um, but, you know, but I'm very pleased with our governor's response to it and pleased with, with you know, it, we are a progressive state and we do believe in science. I mean, it really is. It, it's, it's crazy. I was looking at the Cook score of your district, right? Um, mm -hmm. Just 10 years ago. Uh, it was far more conservative, at least with the Cook store score, and that's you know you could you, we can yeah. discuss how those are rated. But there has been so much progress, so much movement in New Mexico, as we're seeing in Arizona, uh, and people are discussing in Texas. There is such a sweeping shift in politics uh, that the Sun Belt is giving me hope, uh, hopefully, <laughs> hope for for this country. But um, how does that play out in your district in your race? I mean, you you will have to run against a Republican, but do they have a shot? I, I don't I don't think so. Um, we haven't had a Republican for quite a while. I think since Steve Schiff, which was what, 20 some years ago. Um, it used to be more conservative, but we have a lot of young people, a lot of people of color 
we have a lot of organizations, grassroots organizations that are just, they've changed the face, um, I think, and, and that's really important. And then we also have, you know, people who are in their 60s, 70s, who remember the 60s and say, hey, this is another time period where we need to stand up. So it, it's a great, um, I think this is a great time to, to be a progressive in New Mexico. That's great. Um, Green New Deal, you've already yes, mentioned exactly. that you're for it. You are against fracking. Uh, you're for Medicare for all. Are there any other big, bold, progressive ideas that uh, you, you stand for that you want to make a case for on, uh, on the Nomi Well, one, one of the big things that I think we look, need to look at is a really compassionate, international rights-focused immigration reform. You know, I was very glad that, this, that our President Biden um, is doing something for the DACA um, people, the, the DREAMers. However, we can't just be yanking them around with executive orders. We need to put it in law and really protect them. And we need to get babies out of cages and we need to just really, I think, focus on a humanitarian immigration reform. And so I'd like to put that out there. And, and, it, and I know that I would be a really powerful voice there. And well needed. I mean, this is, it's, it is shocking even to see, you know, he said he was going to take swift action as soon as he got elected. And then uh, this week in, in the news, uh, it was announced that his administration is delaying uh, for I don't know what, further assessment. I, no idea. I don't know. I, do, I don't understand that because this, this is something he campaigned on and it's something that I certainly believe in and I think it needs to be pushed. This is important that we need- On day one. Yeah. These babies, I mean, how, I'm, I'm sure it's a logistical nightmare, but at least put the process, start the process uh, yeah. of, of figuring out how to reunite these families and shutting down those camps at the border. Um, right. Even if it was a, an extension of an Obama policy, you know, it doesn't mean that you need to have camps at the border funded by- yeah. Absolutely. The, and, and, they, and they could even just do executive orders directing ICE not to detain people at courthouses, directing ICE not to detain people at schools, directing ICE, you know, there's so many things that, that I think are easy lifts. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I wanna be there and push it. Senator, um, how can people learn about your campaign, help out? We'll put your, you'll, we'll put your website uh, in the information section, but if folks wanna volunteer, how, what can they do from their Well, you their know, they could, they could make calls, they could help. Um, on the website, we've got a volunteer section. And then of course, the big thing is, um, is money to pay for my, um, my organizers. They are fantastic. I don't know how long this is going to last right. uh, because I don't know when she's going to resign. And so that continuing the campaign is kind of um, a little bit of a worry for me. I just need to make sure that I have the resources to do what I need to do. And of course, you're not taking corporate money. You're a you're a progressive. No corporate all the way. money. No NRA money. Um, no oil and gas money. Not that they'd offer. But. <laughs> <laughs> After that tweet. And recently, congratulations. Um, you know, I'm on the board of Matriarch. You are. Uh, you are just endorsed for your special election by Matriarch. So we're excited to support you along the way as well. Oh, thank you. I was so excited. I love Matriarch because they're, they're progressive in even how they handle endorsements. Uh, for example, it was kind of funny. They said, you know, one of the things that we could offer is, is counseling if you need it. And I was like, really? Oh my God, thank you. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> because this is a very highly stressful thing. And I was just like, oh wow, really? And, and just the feeling of sisterhood, because you can feel very lonely and isolated doing this, particularly in the time of COVID. So I was very pleased. 
Yeah, the funny, it was when COVID hit, we, uh, as a crew, everybody, you know, dropped everything. It was all hands on deck. And, you know, we were trying to help. I mean, we were learning as well. No one had ever dealt with a, a pandemic campaign before. So we would do these regular phone calls and Zooms. And, um, and it started off just trading tips, like how, you know, how do you shift your budget so that suddenly it's all digital and you're not doing, you know, not knocking on doors, or maybe you are knocking on doors in a few months. And so everybody was learning from each other. And the candidates, you know, some had um, elections that fell just as the pandemic started and they pushed the dates away, uh, like Morgan Harper, Nabila Islam. And so their entire budget and strategy for GOTV changed drastically. Uh, but candidates like Cori Bush, there was a little bit more time. And so she learned, I, I want to believe, she learned from those experiences. And so the sisterhood really did um, help. And you're in a very different type of election, but uh, you know, I think there's a lot of lessons and, and the sisterhood does help quite a bit. So yeah. Oh, well, that, that was to me, the most exciting thing about it is the idea of sisterhood. And then when we're in office, continuing that sisterhood, that exactly. I think is just awesome. Senator Antoinette Cezio Lopez, go check out her campaign, volunteer if you can. You're, you're one of the few uh, campaigns in town right now. So I'm going to guess you're going to get a lot of support coming very quickly. I hope so. I know. Cause it's hard to sort of get yourself uh, above the pack sometimes. So it, it, it's great. And we got to move quickly on this. It's a special election, guys. So you got to make the, the progressive television show rounds. Uh, and <laughs> that's how it works. I mean. Well, Nomiki, thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. This is thanks great. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Thanks for ever running. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. And we will be right back with our panel. So stick around for a real quick break. We've got a power, it's, it's Femme Friday. Femme Friday is always powerful. So you want to stick around for right after this break. I'm super excited to have uh, back on the show Esperanza Fonseca. She is a member of a firm. It is a transnational feminist organization. She has been a labor and policy organizer for several years and she's a regular on the show and of course we have Piper Winkler who is a member of Team TNS. She is a core uh, organizer, she was a core organizer I should say of Harvard for Bernie which is now Harvard YDSA and uh, her writing has appeared in Jacobin the Harvard Political Review. Also I think Piper it is it has been one year uh, since that glorious event that you hosted at Harvard uh, which was how I met you. And so we should probably post your, your beautiful speech that you gave. Uh, and oh, remember so kind. what you stood for. <laughs> <laughs> We've known each other for a whole year. It's an absolute pleasure and a momentous occasion to be back on the show. One year, two impeachments, one coup. Oh, here we gosh. Are. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's start on something light. Um, and I say light because I can't understand how this happened. All of the tech issues that we've had on the show today are with a small team. We do not receive millions of dollars, even though I'm sure tons of you guys watching made some money on that GameStop stop, uh, deal. But, you know, sometimes money does not buy you a great, uh, even with a huge team, you might not always be on top of the technical side of your show. Uh, let's play this beautiful clip from the Brian Williams show. Brian Williams, who couldn't remember if he had jumped out of a, a, a helicopter in a war zone or not, it just slipped his mind. Uh, shocked that this, this would happen as well. Let's play that clip. Out of this meeting today uh, between McCarthy and Trump, uh, we'll watch it and react on the other side. I love you. 
you. we have rolled the wrong clip and we were we were sold a bill of goods here i thought this was going to be of the uh, mccarthy and trump meeting and someone's going to be of course in big trouble so baritone that guy deserves an award he's going to be in big trouble man brian williams she is all right so i i know this is a joke but i i think first off it's great trolling on behalf of the msnbc crew who might be pushing back. I'm just going to throw this out there as the first question. Is the MSNBC crew rebelling against the um, the neocon like Bill Crystal and Baratune? I mean, Baratune is great, but like, what is that lineup? Is this their way of rebelling? Esperanza, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it very well could be. I would hesitate from using the word rebellion because that signifies some kind of like organized action. But I think, uh, you know, in the past several months, I mean, I mean we've just seen so many uh, hilarious incidents that just look like bloopers that I think really show the spectacle of democracy in our country. I mean, that was hilarious, right? Uh, then you have, you know, Trump's team accidentally booking a press conference at, you know, in some alleyway, thinking it was the Four Seasons Hotel. You know, you have some White House staff <laughs> Offer, uh, you know, changing the front page. Um, just another hilarious incident in uh, U.S. 2021. Pepper, what are your thoughts? GameStop is a really interesting case because it highlights the fact that, you know, a lot of people are understanding possible opportunities to point out flaws in the capitalist system that, you know, have been apparent to a lot of us for a really long time. People are understanding, you know, I wouldn't say that what's happening around GameStop particularly is organizing, but I think there is an opportunity to have a conversation with people, you know, to say that, you know, swooping in to save the banks, which is what Elizabeth Warren is kind of suggesting right now on Twitter, is probably not the move that's going to appeal to a lot of people who are investing and are now seeing that, you know, their their ability to invest more, get that money back is being lost. So I don't think it's a left movement in and of itself, obviously, because you know, we're not talking about really redistributing money in a way that has to do with the just system. But it does seem like a good opportunity to point out injustice. And so I think that can be a productive conversation. And it changes the conversation. I mean, I think that's what's so illuminating about this is uh, through the GameStop conversation, people learn how the markets work. <laughs> <laughs> for those majority of Americans who do not trade in the markets, let's just reiterate that, uh, they learn just how ridiculous these markets work um, as we, we played that clip from, uh, from our friend Kylie Brakeman who illustrated <laughs> how ridiculous it is. Um, let's, let's play this clip because there's, there's a lot of ridiculousness out there and I feel like sometimes you have like very legitimate media and press secretaries, as we said, who just sort of report on it or, or think that it's like the norm, partly because of Trump. Um, and I think this really started to rise up during, during the Tea Party when uh, they became, you know, an actual electoral force. So I want to play this clip of Jen Psaki, who's the new press secretary, 
who just is not having it. Um, and thank God, if I can throw that at her, I'm sure we'll have other opportunities to criticize her, but thank God she's not having it. Let's play this clip. Invade that is because we don't want to elevate uh, conspiracy theories further in the briefing room. So I'm going to speak. To, I'm going to leave it at that. And I'll we'll leave to sit. We'll leave. To, we'll leave decisions about committees uh, to members of Congress. And we've certainly seen Speaker Pelosi speak to that. I got to say, I'm, I'm digging this. I have not always been her biggest fan, but she's just like, no bullshit zone. This is my zone. You get out. You, you want to bring in Marjorie Taylor Greene and her bullshit conspiracy theories. You go do that down the hall in the Congress or down the street. Um, Esperanza, I mean, I'm hoping this is how the administration rolls moving forward, but it feels like this is her way of like slightly deplatforming because that role really does deliver the um, the news of um, of the day. I mean, so much news comes out of that briefing room, and I think I'm hoping that the Biden administration uh, gets a sense of how powerful uh, they are as messengers in dictating the conversation. Um, What's your thought? Do you think that, that, that the conspiracy theories are going to go away now that they don't have a place in the White House? Hopefully. Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually, uh, you know, I, I always love seeing, you know, a strong woman be able to like, you know, shut down a conversation that just isn't going anywhere or something. Uh, but I also would caution against thinking that, you know, a change in the occupant of the White House necessarily means a change in what we're seeing throughout America. I think that, um, you know, a lot of these conspiracy theories, uh, there's a tendency to just want to blame them on one person and not one one person is Trump. But uh, I think we're going to see a rise in them because uh, crises are becoming uh, more recurrent. And we no one is really offering a strong explanation for what's happening. You know, on top of that, you see corruption in both parties. Uh, you know, what she said today was great. But at the same time, I mean, uh, what's happening right now, uh, you know, with uh, Biden's cabinet members uh, being tied up in, you know, this whole stock incident and everything, I think just really unveils uh, corruption that's present in both parties. Um, and neither of those parties is going to be able to uh, stop conspiracy theories that they're helping to cause. I mean, at the top of the show, we, we talked about in the open how if you're not willing to, if there's no line, right? If the Republican party has no line and then you don't have Democrats calling out the Republicans who aren't calling out their members. I mean, it's easy for Democrats to call out Marjorie Taylor Greene like Pelosi did and like Saki did, but how easy is it for them to call out Kevin McCarthy for going down to, to Florida and uh, to Mar-a-Lago and cozying up to Trump? Piper, I mean, like, I think I think Esperanza makes a great point. Like we also have our part in as progressives need to pressure the Democrats and the Democrats need to like do something. Oh my gosh, of course. I think this is a really good point too. You know, not only should Taylor Green be, be called out for the, for promoting cruel, like deeply disturbed conspiracy theories, but at the same time, Again, you know, talking about the things that are going on within the Democratic Party is, is also very important. I think, you know, talking, for example, if we're on the if we're on the subject of stocks that um, Nancy Pelosi invested a ton in, in Tesla, I think got like te Tesla calls. And then, of course, it's unveiled that, you know, Biden has a new program to support transition toward electric vehicles, et cetera. So there's a ton of corruption. And while, you know, I, I want to separate the two things, of course, we should talk specifically about making sure that the White House isn't elevating conspiracy theories that put people's lives in danger. And then, you know, to respond to your question, I think at the same time, as leftists, we know how important it is to pressure the Democratic Party to do the right thing. 
Okay, so I want to shift gears a little bit because speaking of holding Democrats accountable um, and the media, my dear governor, Governor Andrew Cuomo, has been on a, a book tour just campaigning on how effective he has been in his own mind as the governor of New York during a pandemic. Just, you know, I will say like Newsom is playing politics a little more. He's to fault for a lot, as we're very aware in California. But I don't feel like Newsom lives in a delusional world where he thinks that he solved COVID. I think that Andrew Cuomo literally thinks that COVID doesn't exist anymore and he is responsible for ending it. Um, so the attorney general, just as a little background here uh, before we post that clip, the attorney general of New York is, is Tish James, Letitia James. She was previously the public advocate of New York City. And prior to that, she was in the city council. <clears throat> She uh, notably joined up with, uh, was endorsed by Cuomo when she ran for attorney general in a very contested primary uh, with Sean Patrick Maloney and, uh, and, and um, uh, oh my God, I'm forgetting <laughs> my dear friend uh, out of New York, but it was, it was a very contested primary and she has aligned with him, but now she is not. And this might signal something more. So let's play that clip real quick. Attorney General Letitia James accusing the Cuomo administration of undercounting COVID related deaths at nursing homes by as much as 50%. I want to bring in NBC News investigative correspondent Tom Winter with more on this. Tom, walk us through what this new report found. Sure, Craig. So a couple of things. As you said, uh, the idea of undercutting the uh, or undercounting uh, the number of deaths uh, related to COVID-19 at nursing homes, kind of top of the list of this report, it's 76 pages. Uh, the report says uh, uh, that there were a larger number of nursing home residents that died from COVID-19 than the New York State Department of Health published um, published nursing home data reflected. It may have been undercounted by as much as 50 percent drilling into this report. They say specifically that the Office of the Attorney General uh, uh, Letitia James's office is investigating, quote, where the discrepancies cannot his state's Department of Health uh, accurately counted the number of deaths that are directly attributed to those nursing homes in COVID-19. So a lot more to drill into on this, Craig, but obviously some serious concerns being raised by the attorney. This is this story has been getting attention in the New York press, but I, I mean, maybe it's just because you have a Democrat who's in office um, and, you know, he's called just, just for folks to know who are not from New York, Governor Cuomo, while he may have his father's name, who was definitely more progressive, Governor Cuomo has ostensibly been running and, and acting as if he is a New York Republican for many years. He created this little uh, alliance called the Independent Democratic Conference, which was eight Democrats who got elected in Democratic districts. Uh, but decided to literally caucus with the Republicans, got better, bigger offices, uh, you know, extra perks for their offices, and, and as a result, held up the state Senate of New York so that New York didn't have a supermajority and it wasn't fully Democratic. So anytime something didn't pass, Governor Cuomo didn't have to look like he was a Republican. Uh, he just blames it on these senators. Now, they've been voted out. Uh, there was a big organized effort to vote them out. And so suddenly Governor Cuomo is in a position where the only way he can pretend to be a progressive is just by saying it over and over. Um, this story, even though it's got a ton of play, it's not permeating. And I, I personally think it's because Democrats haven't been willing to call him out outside of New York State. Um, this is huge for an attorney general not just to 
push back against him and launch an investigation, but she's one of his allies? Like, is this a sea change? I mean, do, do we think, number one, she's going to run for governor against him? Do, what do we think is going to come out of this? Um, as far as like, you're in California, and I know you got your own issues, your own governor right now, but like, how do you see this kind of signaling uh, responsibility? I mean, there, there, there's blood on his hands, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, I'm not sure how successful she will be. Uh, I hope her investigation does, you know, turn something out. But I do think it's an important action because, um, you know, this this isn't just about uh, New York or one state. I mean, since the start of our pandemics, in a very real way, long-term care homes, uh, nursing homes, uh, you know, really became what some describe to be death camps, right? I mean, these are uh, some of the most vulnerable people in our society. We should be caring for our elders who, uh, you know, literally raised us and took care of us. And instead, uh, we really just sort of sacrificed them. And, and I, although I do think, uh, you know, individuals need to be held accountable. I mean, Cuomo does have blood on his hands. Uh, this trend, uh, you know, uh, in our healthcare system, in our hospital system, uh, it's been happening for decades now. Um, so when this pandemic started, even if you had someone who had the best intentions, who was a competent, uh, you know, politician who could manage it, the way that our system has been set up uh, was going to result in math, mass death. Uh, one way or the other. And so I think holding these people accountable and not just as individuals, but using this moment to push through deep reforms, deep changes that can uh, lessen the impact uh, when the next pandemic comes up is going to be extremely important on our agenda over the next few years. Uh, Piper, do you, what are your thoughts? Uh, Esperanza, feel free to just chime in because I, my audio might get cut again. So. <laughs> Go for it. Floor is yours. Yeah. I'm so happy to get to come back to this question because I am from Massachusetts, where we have our own governor who's bungling things. So, you know, Charlie Baker is actually a Republican. And I think it, you know, it bears saying that it seems Massachusetts is having a uniquely bad response to the coronavirus, you know. And some of that is mirrored by Cuomo. I think there's a sense of, you know, people who have supported austerity in the, the, in the healthcare industry. I mean, Charlie Baker comes directly from that background. Um, and of course, now you have Cuomo going around with his book talking about you know, how he's done such a wonderful job handling things when he's partly responsible. You know, his governance is responsible for what's happening now in New York in a lot of ways, not just in terms of like how he's responded in the past year, but also about how he's, you know, how he's governed during his time overall in office. So, I mean, I think it's obvious if you compare the cases of Massachusetts and New York, it's a, it's a really great case for socialism. It's a wonderful case for, you know, fully funding our healthcare systems, for making sure that senior care is, you know, beyond adequately recognizes the dignity of the elder people in our society. I feel like that's something that the pandemic has shown how grossly, you know, grossly unsuited those kinds of care facilities are to taking care of people when they're at their most vulnerable I mean, I've also worked at homeless shelters for a lot of my time in college, and I know how insufficient congregate shelters are right now as well. You know, and it's a great case for making it clear that, you know, people deserve non-congregate shelters. New York, um, Boston, all the, the large cities and everywhere in the country really should be taking um, should be taking federal funding that Biden administration is offering to give hotels to homeless people. But instead, you have this 
you know, high austerity response that Cuomo and Baker and a bunch of other governors have gone all in on. Well, and part of that is, I mean, in New York City, it's become such a, a, a New York Post, front page of the New York Post issue, because you have even uh, Democrats who don't, you know, not in your backyard. Is nobody wants shelters in their, um, which doesn't make any sense because homeless are going to be everywhere in the city. So, yeah, yeah. So you know, I uh, I don't know how many people know this, but a few years ago, you know, I myself was homeless, and uh, I was told that there was a twelve month wait list for all the shelters in three counties, and that's if you're single, right? Um, if you uh, have a family, it's a six to 12 month wait list, right? So we know like there's a huge crisis. The pandemic only uh, made that worse. But, you know, as an organizer, I think there's something that's so important to be said about this. Whether politicians, uh, you know, push policies of austerity or push policies that, you know, take care of people and expand the social safety net is only based on one thing, and that is a uh, class struggle, right? Uh, do we as the working class, uh, are we organized uh, in a way that allows us to exert our power to influence the direction of the country? Or are we disorganized and are we atomized so that the people who profit off of crisis uh, are able to push uh, the country in their direction, which means more austerity for us and more profit for them. And so I think this moment shows uh, if you're not organized, if you're not part of an organization, now is the time to do so because crises are not going away, but we can uh, help prevent this from happening again in the future if we get organized. 100%. And, you know, one of the things that we've been highlighting on the show lately is specifically that the funding that has been uh, given to the public, I mean, is is specifically going to those who don't need it. And it's not just business aid, it's it's folks who uh, do not need the $2,000 checks. And this, uh, this economy has only gotten better for those who are invested in Wall Street and who receive those PPP loans uh, and only gotten worse and has only exacerbated the uh, income inequality. So thank you guys so much. Uh, thanks for your patience with, with my Wi-Fi issues that have jumped in or Zoom issues. I don't even know. I've uh, jumped in halfway through the show. Always grateful to have you on the show. Uh, definitely check us out. You guys are regulars now, so we love to have you on anytime. I'm going to do some quick shout outs before they freeze me up again. You know, who knows what, it, maybe it's Janet Napolitano. She's on the board of Zoom now. So maybe she's just like, shut that lady up. <laughs> shut her up right now. <laughs> All right. Uh, lots of love to our super chat. If I do cut out, I promise I'll get these um, out on Tuesday. But Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska sends his love and Rylan N as well. Uh, when are you having Cyber Demon 538 on again, Andrea? Oh, that's a great idea. I think we have, I think we are scheduling her right now. We schedule a little bit out in advance, which is great. Um, T-W-Z-R-R-P-R-Z, that's a lot of Z's and R's and P's, uh, sends their love. Thank you so much. And before the cause says, do we need some kind of lefty Lincoln project to encourage a Trump-led right-wing third party splintered from Republicans so they fragment and fail? You know, great question. Um, if only the Lincoln project was actually doing that. So, I mean, sometimes they are. I, I Maybe, maybe not. I think it. I think they're so crazy that they get inspired by this stuff, and they just think it's some sort of like mass media that's operating against them. We 
marinate on that a little bit, a little bit more, because I do think that the Republican Party is not splintered. I think it's growing, as I said, in the top of the show. So um, I'll think about it this weekend. And who else do we have in here? Uh, Ky- Kyler Asado says, would love to see some someone progressive run for governor uh, in Arizona, like Esperanza. I'm so sad she she jumped out. That would have been great for her to respond to. I will ask her next time she's on. Uh, huge, huge, huge thanks to all of our moderators today. It was a crazy day with technology. Um, two different technological issues popped up at once, I think out of our control. So we'll just hopefully move through that. Uh, thank you to Bob Choke and the Orb and Chuck Diesel on YouTube and Dorian Sapiens and A Difficult Truth on Twitch for ch- keeping that chat room troll free and of course midi docs and mario q for working those algorithms we always appreciate that and harvey k who's in that live chat he's always debating he's always informing and i think he did a plug for jacobin uh he's going to be on that in the coming days i think i saw that in the chat all right everybody super grateful to you we will see you on tuesday 3 p.m eastern right here on twitch uh and as well on youtube and to those who are in our our uh, podcast world. We are always grateful to you, especially the patrons. Take care. Have a great weekend.